This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Artificial Intelligence Podcast with your host, Dr. Tony Huang. Today, I'm with Walter Bender. Walter, you want to give um, the audience a brief intro about yourself and your journey in the tech world? Sure. I'm Walter Bender. I'm the chief scientific officer at Cicero. It's a DC-based startup that's working in AI and the life sciences. I've had a somewhat eclectic career. I spent uh, 30 years at MIT. I was one of the founding members of the MIT Media Lab and was director of the lab for six years. Then I left to start One Laptop Per Child with Nicholas Negroponte. And uh, then I started... Uh, a software foundation called Sugar Labs, which is uh, the software, educational software for kids that ran on the laptop, actually runs on the laptop. We're still developing that software. I started a college for industrial design in Miami, and then I was I'm one of the co-founders of Cicero. So having witnessed the inception of AI, what drew you to the field initially? I'm not sure I, I witnessed the inception. My my former office mate, Marvin Minsky, and actually two of my former office mates, Marvin Minsky and Oliver Selfridge, were at the very first meeting of AI, the Dartmouth 1956 meeting. Uh, I was born in 1956. I'm not sure that I was at the inception of AI, but it's a funny coincidence there. But I, I certainly have seen a lot of the developments of AI over the years, and there's been lots of ups and downs and exciting times and disappointing times. We're certainly in a very exciting time right now, and it's really great to see that there's so much activity, so much interest, and so many great things happening. So you have a pretty cool tenure at MIT, which includes running the MIT Media Lab. Um, how would you describe the evolution of AI over the decades at MIT? I, I think that there's actually, there's a really terrific video that Jerry Wiesner, former um, president of MIT, uh, actually, he used to run the research lab for electronics and the radar lab at MIT during World War II. He was JFK's science advisor. He did a special on AI in 1962 for CBS, you should Google it. It's fantastic. It blows your mind what they were thinking even back then. A lot of the early work came from people like McCulloch, came from people like Norbert Wiener, who were thinking about some of the connections between the mind, how the brain works physically, and some of the early ideas behind computing. And then there were and innovations like Jerry Letvin and McCulloch wrote a paper, What the Frog's Eye Tells a Frog's Brain, which really got us thinking very differently about the, the, the structure of these things. There was Minsky and Papert's Perceptrons, in, in, and then followed by Minsky's Society of Mind, which I think is really one of the seminal works. It really said AI is not just one thing. It's not this monolithic approach to computing, but it's a collection of agencies, and these agencies uh, each solve different types of problems and work together. 
he followed that up with a wonderful book called The Emotion Machine, which was really about how are these agents organized? How do they actually cooperate with each other? So I, I think watching that whole trajectory was it was a privilege to be able to work with these people. And then at the same time, at the Media Lab in particular, we've always been interested in, we were very interested in the intersection between computation and, and people. Wiesner coined the, uh, sort of came up with the motto of the Media Lab, learning and expressing by people and machines. So it was both how does human learning and expression inform AI and how does AI inform human learning and expression? So it, it was a really exciting time and uh, we're in another exciting time right now. So when you were at MIT, can you share like some pivotal moments or projects that you worked on that you're like you were really proud of or something that just really stood out to you? Yeah, it's mostly projects that my students did because um, I, I my, my talent at MIT was recruiting great students. But for example, um, I, I did a project back in the um, late 70s, early 80s on digital news. And it was a lot like what you would think of as uh, Google News today. And one of my graduate students, John Orwant, um, developed a, a, a system called Doppelganger. And uh, Doppelganger was the computer making observations about you so that it could inform your newsfeed as to what you might be interested in. But the seminal moment was his, his master's thesis, which was Doppelganger Goes to School. And that, that was really where we took a lot of the learning from AI, machine learning in particular, and applied it to all these observations that we're making about individual uh, readers of the news. And so the combination of machine learning to make predictions and to make guesses and make correlations and collaborations between different user groups, et cetera, that was really, that was a great moment. Doppelganger goes to school. That's really cool. So shifting gears over to education, what is one laptop per child it, in a high level? Obviously it, it, it's in the name, but what is it? What inspired the creation of one laptop per child? And obviously like, when did you do it? Like all these right. facts. Sure. Okay. Uh, tell me yeah. a little bit of background on, on that. Sure. One of, one of my colleagues at MIT was Seymour Papert and Seymour and another colleague, Cynthia Solomon, invented a, a programming language for children called Logo back in the early 1960s. And Cynthia was the first computer teacher in an elementary school that I'm aware of in the history of, of that uh, field. But And we did lots of projects together. One of my, another one of my graduate students, uh, Mark Corticus, uh, did a... Uh, system uh, at one of the first one-to-one -one computing programs of, of uh, elementary school in, in Jamaica Plain in Boston called the Hennigan School, where the kids were blogging about uh, news. And this was in the mid-1980s. Um, but we were doing all these cool experiments, getting great results, but nobody, it was never going to scale. And in the mid-2000s, we took a look at this, why, why, why are all these cool things we're doing not actually getting out into the world? And we made the observation that one of the reasons is that kids don't have access to computing. 
they just don't have access to hardware to do things on, never mind access to interesting software to use once they have access to hardware. So that was really the genesis of One Laptop Per Child. When we started One Laptop Per Child, laptop computers cost about $2,000. Um, so you just, they weren't something for kids. So we basically took an order of magnitude out of the, the cost of a laptop computer. We destroyed the margins of the laptop business. There's some uh, laptop manufacturers who've never forgiven us for that. We built what was called the $100 laptop. We never got the price point quite down to $100. Uh, so this was in 2006, 2007. And a really innovative machine along a number of different dimensions. First of all, incredibly green machine. A typical laptop back then ran at 70 watts. Our laptop ran at five watts. And we, uh, my, my colleague, uh, Mary Lou Jepson, was the one who innovated uh, the first laptop that came with a LED backlight instead of fluorescent backlight. First laptop, um, we had fantastic Wi-Fi. It was the first laptop to come with a video camera standard built into the laptop. All sorts of, of, of nice stuff. and But the cool thing about it, uh, and to this day, these laptops that we distributed in 2006, 2007, a, a large number of them are still in operation today. And the reason for that is not just because we built it to be robust, but we also built it so that the kids themselves could repair it. And so, That's really cool. Yeah. In rural Peru, rural Nepal, these laptops are still running. Anyway, so, that reminds me a lot of like the Raspberry Pi Foundation's mission to yeah. deliver like cheap computing to underserved kids. And so that that, that was like the genesis of the Raspberry Pi. Uh, yeah, no, so the or, Raspberry Pi was a follow-on project from us. I talked with those guys quite a bit in the early days. And yeah, and our the software we wrote for the laptop originally, it's a Linux-based desktop. And it runs on Raspberry Pi. It's lovely on Raspberry Pi. Actually, one of the things that happened was that we got to the point where the idea of, of kids and laptops and inexpensive laptops caught on. And so we didn't have to do the hardware anymore. So I've been focusing on the software ever since. In in your opinion, what does like one laptop per child's mission, like how does that intertwine with the larger vision of AI in education? I'm not sure that the AI in education is a larger mission than one laptop per child. Uh, I think you've got the sign bit wrong on that one. But, but nonetheless, the idea is to give children tools to allow them to explore powerful ideas. And uh, part of that toolkit is the hardware. Part of that toolkit is the software. Um, I'm a big advocate of uh, a pedagogy called constructionism, uh, which you can sum up in if you, you learn through doing, if you want more learning, you want more doing. So a lot of what we did with One Laptop Per Child, and I think a lot of the potential of AI in education has to do with giving children better tools for making things. And one of the things, actually, this is really critical, and it's critical, I think, to the story of where AI is at right now as well. We built some great tools. Kids could make really wonderful things they could do, create. But we baked into the software this concept of reflection. And what I mean by that, uh, I'm not sure if you're, I'm sure you're familiar with Git and Git commits. You can't make a commit in Git without a, a commit message. 
And there's a reason for that, because we want you to stop and think about why is why did you do what you just did? Tell us why you did what you just did. You're taking a moment to reflect on what you just did. And that's cooked into how we do software engineering. In Sugar, the operating system for one laptop per child, we did the same thing. We cooked in this notion that whenever you make something, you have to stop and write a little um, commit message as to what you did, why you did it, how you did it, what you learned. So the idea of, of this reflection as being part of the learning process, I think is really critical. And it's missing from, I would say, 99% of all educational software. They just don't get it, that reflection is critical. And now let me make the connection to AI. Um, we live in this wonderful world of large language models that are super powerful. They can, they're really boosting us in terms of creativity. But if you don't stop and reflect and have the model reflect and validate and, and really explain what it did and why it did what it did, you're heading off the rails. So I, th I think this idea of reflection, again, back to Wiesner, where we're talking about expression and learning for people and machines, both people and machines have to reflect as part of that learning process. So I, I think there's this, this wonderful synergy there um, that's only just beginning to see the, the, the light of day, especially in AI and education. But I mm -hmm. think it's absolutely central to making these systems successful. What were some of the challenges that you faced when you were trying to revolutionize education in like underserved communities? What type of roadblocks did you hit? Some like cool little tidbits that you discovered, any breakthroughs that you've encountered? One of, let me go back to MIT for a second, because I think one of the most amazing things about MIT as an institution is that MIT trusts its students. And I can give you lots of examples. My favorite example is MIT has a, a modest art collection. Every year at the beginning of the year, they distribute their art collection to the students for their dorm rooms. Uh, my, my daughter, when she was a student at MIT, had a Miro courtesy of, of uh, um, MIT in her dorm room for four years. Um, MIT trusted students. And with one laptop per child, we really strove to let the children be the owners, the drivers of their education, of their learning. We trusted the kids. And yet most of the um, school systems that we encountered don't in inherently trust the kids. So there was a tension there, a, a tension of trust. So one of the things we did with One Laptop Child with the software is we, we designed the software so that the kids could make changes to it. So it wasn't just use the software, it was write the software. And at one point, 50% of the commits to Sugar came from kids. So it we were really successful in that regard, but it was always a fight with the Ministry of Education. It was always a fight with the down to the individual school or teacher level to really break through to this idea of you, you want to trust the kids, that you're there to mentor the kids, not to um, lead them by the nose. So that was really the, the biggest challenge, I think. Um, and it remains a challenge. It's just, it's one of the, the, the harder concepts for some reason. It's not a new concept. It's, it's, it's actually a well-established concept, but it's still really 
foreign to the way we've structured school and structured uh, classrooms and structured curriculum. So how did you create Socero? Like how, where did it begin? How, what was the inception of it? Was it just like a conversation with some peers and then you were like, let's spin off a company or did you get demand from like clients? It really started, it was a, a dinner conversation uh, with uh, my, my co-founders, Dee and Richard. Um, we we got together at dinner. Uh, I met them through a mutual friend, and uh, we just hit it off and and really wanted to bring technology and AI to learning. And then we we went through numerous iterations of what that meant and what the market for that would be. And we settled on the the life sciences. So we really saw lots of need and lots of opportunity there. So what's the biggest like differentiator from like other competitors in the market? I, I think that we have a really, I, I think a much better understanding of what the problems are we're trying to solve than, than most of the rest of the market. A lot of people are, are throwing tools at, at, at problems, but they're not really necessarily understanding what the, the core problem is it's, that, that's um, essential and who the problem solvers are. So we're really tuned into that. So I think we've got, we certainly have in many of our products some best of breed in terms of technology, but I think our, we really shine in terms of aligning the technology to the problem. So I think this year you guys won a an award with AstraZeneca, right? Yes. Uh, you want to tell a little bit more about that? What was it? How'd you win it? I I apologize, but I don't remember the name of the award. Christine could uh, uh, help me. Like the Intelligent uh, uh, Literature Monitoring System? Yeah, no, that's the product that we got the award for, but I don't remember the name of the award itself. For the, but it, Let me look it up. It, yeah. I think it's like the, the Communique Award. Yeah. But anyway, the, the that's one of our core products. It's uh, an Intelligent Literature Monitoring System. And the, the idea behind that one is that the volume of medical literature is e expanding at an enormous rate. It's, I don't remember the, the exact numbers, it's expanding exponentially, it, it, or at least it's a power function there. And so the, the task of monitoring that literature has just gotten completely un, uh, unwieldy. You can't do it without AI. And... So we've applied AI to the problem of, of literature monitoring, but there's a, again, back to really digging down into what the real problems are. You really want to understand why are people monitoring literature? What are the problems they're trying to solve when they're monitoring literature so that you're providing them the right insights, the right uh, perspective on that? So that's really what we we did with AstraZeneca and we work with a number of other pharma companies with, uh, with the same product. So we, we've taken this idea and it might be that sometimes the problem you're trying to solve is a problem, a regulatory problem. Sometimes the problem you're trying to solve is one of just getting the right information to the right person within your organization so they can make the, the, they can make an informed decision. A lot of what we're, we do at Cicero, and this actually has roots back to a lot of the work I did at MIT, it's we're, we're not trying to have the AI system make decisions for you. We're, have, we're trying to let you as a you know, subject matter expert use your time more efficiently 
so that you can make more informed decisions. So you can make decisions based on broader, you can cast a wider net, you can push things through a finer sieve. You have the opportunity to really make assertions and then try to validate those assertions. There's lots of things that in our tooling that we uh, apply to these very specific types of problems that these SMEs run into on, on a daily basis. So healthcare is a field where mistakes can have grave consequences. Um, how does Cicero's platform mitigate AI hallucinations? And I guess like, why is this so critical in the medical sector? Hallucinations are just one of them, one of many mistakes that they get made. Again, this is one of the reasons why we don't try to make decisions for the humans. We try to make decisions side by side with our human experts. And we try to, we, we first, we do a, a lot of work around validation. So I would say there's sort of a, a ratio of maybe 40% of the work is data preparation. 20% of the work is applying the large language models. And 40% of the work is validation and making sure that you can explain or rationalize all the decisions that the model made. So we, we, we spent a lot of time on, on that latter part of the problem. Uh, we're also really good at the, the, the first piece, the, the data prep part. And there's all sorts of exciting stuff happening in the middle where we're you know, taking advantage of lots of different, again, we, we treat it back, back to Minsky and society of mind. All of our solutions are not monolithic solutions, but a collection of different agencies that are working on different parts of the problem and one of those agents is the human, the, the subject matter expert. So what, what are some like the biggest challenges of applying AI to the world of healthcare? You, you mentioned already, you really can't make mistakes. You really, because people are making life and death decisions based on what you're presenting. So you really need to make sure that uh, you've got a, you know, you need to have very good precision recall, but you also need to make sure that you can explain why you're doing what you're doing and let people uh, challenge what you're doing. So we're not, again, trying to say we're always right, but we're trying to point you in, in, in a direction we think is going to be fruitful for you to explore. And that way you're much more likely to find the right things, make the right decisions because you're not wasting your time looking for needles and haystacks. You're much more on, on task and more on target. Cool. So in your view, how will AI revolutionize the healthcare industry in say like the next decade? <laughs> okay. Predicting's hard. Predicting the future is even harder. So the we're only one slice of, of how AI is impacting healthcare. So we're not doing, for example, protein folding. There, there's certainly lots of ways in which I think AI is going to directly enhance the biochemistry of the life sciences. But I think what we're trying to do is identify, and I, I think AI will be able to help quite a bit with this, identify opportunities for and needs that are out there and try to make a connection between the needs and 
the things that are emerging in the laboratory. So a lot of times somebody will work on something and there actually ends up being an off-label use of that turns out to be really important, but not just in terms of the marketplace, but really important in terms of being. And so being able to surface those kinds of things, I think, is one of the things that AI is, is going to be fundamental to. Another problem that I think AI is really going to be important, play an important role in, is outreach. A lot of people are talking about the drug development. A lot of people are talking about things like assisting a physician with a diagnosis. But there's another piece to it, which is more of a patient-centric view. How do we make sure that this information is digestible, understandable by the, the patient? Because if you look at, you can run, say, a reading score analysis on literature, say, from PubMed, journal articles and the like. And these articles are all score at very difficult to read. And that they're only really accessible to to somebody with a postgraduate degree in a narrow field. And anybody else who tries to read it, including a physician, is going to struggle with that because this is science. It's not medicine. And so one of the things that happens is that there's a lot of misinterpretation and just general lack of access to this material. But there's this huge wealth of knowledge that people aren't having been able to access. And using AI, not just to find the thing you should read, but make sure that when you read it, you can understand it. That's, I think, a really important uh, goal. So we have actually a product, another product at Cicero is something called Plain Language Summaries. And what we can do is we can take one of these, uh, say, journal articles that's, again, written for a, a, a sign, a postdoc in in uh, specialist and uh, get it down to a reading level for an eighth grader. And so now all of a sudden, if just if you look at the demographics, if you look at the numbers, how many people can actually access this content, it goes from you know, a handful to close to 50% of the population in the US market. Because about 50% of the people in this country can read at an eighth grade level. So it's things like that I think are going to make a huge difference because now all of a sudden people are going to be able to access a lot of information that they were precluded from accessing before, or they could access it, but have no possibility of actually understanding what they're reading. And again, the same holds true for a physician, getting to the right articles that are relevant to their patients, and then in a form that they can actually have a conversation with their patient about it. That's, again, a role for AI and one of the problems that Cicero is tackling. For those aspiring to join the AI industry, especially in the healthcare field, like what type of advice would you give? Patience. <laughs> and uh, I, I think that you need to have a little bit of humility. This stuff is complicated. This stuff is changing all the time. Science, by its very nature, is not certain. So you need to, you know, you need to have a little bit of humility in, in your approach to these problems so that you're able to provide a solution that is, is flexible, is robust, and allows 
a, a human to m make judgment. So it is a different relationship than if you're just trying to, again, provide an answer. It's never about providing an answer. It's, it's building a relationship, building a narrative, building a dialogue. Are there any future plans, anything on the horizon that's coming up for Cicero that's really cool that you want to try to throw out to the wild and, and get people excited about? Sure. We have, we have another uh, product called Medical Insight Management. And Medical Insight Management, is it's it caters to a, a part of the industry called uh, medical affairs. And medical affairs is as part of, of the, the pharmaceutical industry and, and all, actually the medical device industry as well that sits between the science, the scientists developing, and the, the actual product itself. So what they do is they, they're the ones that are trying to get feedback from the field as to what's working, what doesn't work. They're also the ones that are trying to listen in uh, to find out what are the things like off-label uses, what are the new opportunities that are emerging. Uh, and then um, we provide them not just these um, insights into what's happening, but we also provide them evidence uh, about those insights. Uh, and so it's, it, it, I think it's really making that organization be much more um, impactful and that organization really, again, not, not a lot of people have heard of medical affairs, but medical affairs really is at the, the heart of these organizations. And it's really the part of the organization that really drives opportunity and drives, again, this connection between solutions and problems. Well, where do you see AI as a whole going in the next five years? Any, do you have any predictions as to like the next hot like framework that's about to come up or like the next big product in general that's about to come up? For instance, like it, Llama 2 came out maybe a month or a month and a half ago and it, that, right. that just blew the entire community out. Yeah, I think one of the things that, that's happening is that it's this this world of large language models is moving very rapidly, and 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 Lama is the, the prime example of it. Very rapidly from proprietary systems to open systems, and I'm also a big advocate of of software libre, of free software, open source software. I think uh, we're going to see, and we're seeing already, um, a, a huge impact by opening up these systems and opening up the opportunities for a lot more people and a lot more ideas to impact the development. So I think that's one direction that you're, that's going to really accelerate. It's, it's, you know, it, it, the harbingers of that are already quite evident. And I think it's going to really make a, a quantitative and qualitative difference in terms of what we see, where we see these systems applied and, and also actually the robustness of these systems because there'll be a lot more people that are able to really drill down and provide feedback and provide a much more ro robust um, evaluation and critique of what's going on. So I think that's a huge opportunity. I think the other thing is, again, so back, back to Minsky, always comes back to Minsky. I, I think that we're seeing just the beginnings of people starting to realize that large language models, generative AI is part of a much broader ecosystem, that it's one component or it's multiple components in, a, in a, an ecosystem with many layers. Um, and uh, so I think that as we start to see these 
approaches, these very powerful tools start to get integrated much more readily into a, a broader ecosystem of different types of services, different types of approaches to knowledge engineering, I think we're going to see that these systems have a huge boost, both in terms of performance and also in terms of veracity and validation and utility. So Walter, if I need to get in touch with you, how would I do? Walter at Cicero.com. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. And until next time, stay curious.